The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So returning from Gaia House, after, after several months of meditation, um, I've, I've been thinking about, I've had a question on my mind really since I returned. Um, and that question is, why do we meditate? Why do I meditate? Why do we meditate? And what brings us to, what brings us to practice? What brings us to this Dharma practice? This sitting, we, we, we begin by sitting here in meditation. And, and in that, I had to look at what, what, what were the forces, what was the, what was the root source that brought me to, to meditation. Um, I began uh, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And um, I was lucky because it was, it was right over the hill. And um, there's so much Dharma, and there's so much beautiful Dharma available in this area, in the Bay Area. And Spirit Rock was right over the hills, and center is close. Um, and I had friends who uh, worked at Spirit Rock, and many friends who also went to Spirit Rock. And um, and I, um, my my uh, my catalyst that brought me to Spirit Rock was initially um, uh, as part of um, uh, the twelve step programs of Alcoholics Anonymous, and. Um, in those in those twelve 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 steps, um, we are told to uh, to go find a god of our understanding, um, and and to that a spiritual path is very important to those twelve steps. And um, and I had no god of any understanding. I, I actually didn't experience um, didn't experience that much in my life, and I also so I didn't have the, the the potential joy of that or the potential hindrance of any god in my life. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Spirit Rock. I have a friend who's there, and, um, and there it was. And, and I also felt a pull. There was, there was an undeniable pull in me. I didn't know what it was. I was not able to identify what that was. But it was there. There was this, there was this, there was this pull towards something. And I think, I think that's really um, part of what brings us to meditation, brings all of us to meditation. We feel something inside of ourselves. We feel a stirring inside of ourselves. And, um, and I know for me, uh, there was a feeling of wanting connection as well. And there's a beautiful way that we can come together as a sangha and that there's connection. And, um, and it's lovely to do that and sit with other people. Uh, just looking for connection being with others, and also, and also sharing something like this, sharing, sharing this sitting, sharing this practice, sharing the teachings with each other. But you know what? We can come together um, in community. We can come together, and we don't, we don't necessarily have to sit still when we come together. But, but we do. We come in here, and before the talk, we sit. We sit in meditation for 30 minutes, and we sit still in silence. And what are we looking for in that? I think, I think that we're looking for something inside of ourselves when we do this. I'm looking for something inside of myself. I've spent a lot of time, I think we all, we all have spent a lot of time in our lives looking for things outside of ourselves. Many, many ways we do it. Um, Shopping, clothes, 
uh, drugs and alcohol, relationships, um, TV, exercise. There's so many ways that we do this. Um, and, you know, we find that they, they don't always work. They can have some kind of, some kind of initial, initial happiness or initial satisfaction. Um, I can feel that inside myself. Oh, this feels good. And, you know, some, I mean, it, there's so many rewarding things that we do. It's not like it's bad. It's not like it's, all, it's, not like it's necessarily um, unhealthy or, or unbeneficial. But um, there's a way that I have, in my life, I've wrapped myself up in certain identities, whether it's in my work, um, and I hold on to that. I hold on to that as me. Um, so we come and we look for something inside of ourselves. We sit still. And, and here you all are. You're, you're all here tonight. I'm sure you all have busy lives. And I'm really happy that you're here. This is a really big commitment. And here you are, and I don't even know, if, maybe you thought Andrea was going to be here tonight, and I'm sure she gave a great talk last week. And here I am, and who is the speaker? And I could have gone home, and I could have gone to bed early. And, um, and you know, gone to bed early, got some rest, and woken up, and done it all over again. It's, it's a way that in my life I saw that. I saw this way that I was just doing it all over again, doing it all over again. And, and, um, and yet I felt this pull. I felt this pull to something else, something that was pulling me, but it was, it was inside myself this time. There was the other stuff didn't work. The things didn't work. The outer conditions no longer compelled me in the same way. They still compel me, but not in the same way. And so what pulls us out of bed in the morning? We come to our sitting place in the morning. I mean, certainly coffee and the the fact that we have to get out the door should be much more compelling. It seems much more compelling than sitting still in our, our cushion. And yet, you know, we try, I try, I don't always do it, but I try to get up a half an hour early and this big commitment that we do this and we come to meditation a half an hour early, we, we set our alarm clocks and we get out of bed and we sit and you know often the meditation is not that encouraging. So what is encouraging us to do this? What is encouraging us to get out of bed a half an hour early and to sit in meditation? And then others go on retreat. I've been on, I've been on several retreats since... Um, since I began practicing, and um, I don't know if any of you have, but they're wonderful. Uh, they're very hard work. Uh, it is a big commitment as well. IMC here offers some really nice retreats, and uh, you can, once again, Spirit Rock, the Zen Center. There's, there's many places to go and practice uh, for days at a time. We can sit for, for one day, a day long. We can sit for three days, five days. Some people sit for months at a time. And, you know, on retreat, the thought comes up too. Why am I meditating? Why do we meditate? Sometimes the thought comes up. It's like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? You know, it's, it's when we sit, and it's just you, you, you have a sitting period and then a walking period and then a sitting period, and then another walking period, and then another sitting period, and then the biggest break is lunch or meal times, and then a Dharma talk uh, seems to be almost entertainment. (laughs) 
And, um, and so the thought comes in, what is this? Why am I doing this? Uh, um, they often, it's often talked about like day two or three, the thought, and I've noticed this myself, and some, because I've sat longer periods of time, it can come throughout a retreat. It's, it's you know, I could be, I could be in Hawaii, the last retreat I sat, this long retreat, I actually really like planned and fantasized um, a vacation to Hawaii when I got off retreat. And, and here I was sitting, and I'm thinking and fantasizing about going to Hawaii. And I just want to go to Hawaii and tread water, actually. It didn't get a whole lot beyond sitting in the ocean, well, well floating in the ocean, and not even swimming, just treading water. That seemed like the perfect thing to do because my, you know, I'm sitting there with my body and I'm sitting there with my mind and there were times I just did not want to be there. And you know, IMC offers an online meditation course, a six-week course. Uh, and, and this is a during a time, what I, I was a support teacher for this course. It was earlier in the spring. And... Um, and so the thought of why we meditate came up for me a lot um, as I was uh, supporting students on this course. And the students um, are, most, most of the students that I worked with live in the United States, but, there, but a few were in Europe and people all over the world take part in this course. It's a wonderful thing, offered freely, and, um, and they get to listen to a, um, a talk given by Gil on Sunday. And there's uh, questions, um, and all this is online. And, um, and there's questions and there's reflections, daily reflections sent, and there's practice suggestions throughout the week. And, um, and these people don't have the container of their retreat. They're doing their busy life. They're doing their work. And it's just, it's a, I was so inspired by their practice. I was so inspired that they, that they listened to that talk. This was during tax season. And it was mentioned. And... Um, and I thought it was an amazing thing. And, and, and just as in a retreat, um, the stuff came up for them with the, with the, with the inspiration, with a way of, of listening to the talks and setting that intention to do this practice for six weeks in their daily life and, and still be filled with the Dharma and, and try, to, try to get up early and meditate or try to stay up late and meditate. Um, and, you know, the Dharma just came into them. The Dharma came into them. And it was such a sweet thing to see that. It was such a sweet thing to see people's commitment uh, in their lives without, without the support of, for, for most of them, without the support of a Dharma center close by, without a teacher right in front of them. And, and I felt really privileged to talk with them on the phone and, um, and just experience their unfolding, the unfolding of their um, practice and their hearts. And... Um, and I, sometimes I still get emails from some of them telling me about how they're doing or asking me questions. And they talked about this. They talked about uh, this pull they felt. Why did they come to meditation? They felt this, this space inside of them to come in and set this intention to take their seat and to begin to build a, found, to build a foundation with their meditation. For many of us, we can initially what we can initially identify is uh, is suffering um, in Pali dukkha. We we experience suffering. Um, suffering is the translation, and it's also 
uh, the other words that um, that really that really kind of I, resonates with me. I can feel it. Or um, uh, there we have like a reference point of not rightness, um, of insufficiency, of discontent. Something feels like it's missing. It's, it's insufficient. Things are just not quite right. Off kilter, off balance. And then we begin to look at the first noble truth that the Buddha taught us. And we think, can there be an end to the suffering? There is suffering. There is suffering. Like, like if you really, if you really looking, start to look inside yourself, um, that becomes apparent. There is suffering. And, uh, and, and that can be what brings us to meditation as well. And so, so can there be an end to the suffering? And, and why am I suffering? What's going on here? What's, why am I suffering so much? My life may appear very, very, have this exterior and these paddings of, of quite, um, quite, quite stability and happiness, but yet, yet I don't feel right. And the conditions outside can be, can be, Wonderful, seemingly wonderful, or the conditions can be bad. It doesn't really matter. Um, but we can still have that feeling inside. There's this way that, that we feel this pull to explore that, to, ex- to, to explore the discontent in our lives. And once again, all the ways that we've tried to fill that, to fill that space, that missing space, all the ways from the outside, all the exterior ways that we continually try again and again to fill that space. And then we decide, let's look inward. And so we come to meditation, and we take our seat in meditation, and the instructions are to be alert and to be upright and to be relaxed, three things all at the same time. And, um, and we calm ourselves in order to study ourselves. Zen master Dogen Zenji, um, he's a, who was a 12th century uh, Zen master who, um, who began, who started the, the Soto Zen lineage. And, uh, and he felt the pull so strongly that he actually went from Japan over to China to learn about Zen and, um, and returned back to Japan to bring it back to the Japanese and begin the Soto Zen lineage. That's how strongly he felt the pull is that... Um, he was willing to cross the ocean from Japan to China in the 12th century. He wanted to learn. He wanted to learn. Uh, Dogen teaches us, the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. One more time. The Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. That's, uh, that's kind of heady stuff there. Um, what does it mean? The Buddha way part sounds really, really good because, because I love the Buddha. And um, and if this is his way, if this is the Buddha way, I want I want to be there. It's calling me the Buddha way. But what does this mean to study the self? 
What does this mean to forget the self? I, I've, I've noticed that I feel some resistance in that sometimes. What, is, what does this mean? Like, I have to forget myself? Do I really want to study myself? And what about being intimate with all things? Hmm. Maybe we're moving a little too fast here. Do I really want to be intimate with all things? After all, I've spent a lifetime building this, this shell around myself. Do I really want to tear down this shell? Is that what it takes? Is that, is that why I'm meditating? To tear down this shell? A friend of mine um, said that she meditates because... Uh, because she feels that she walks through the world um, with, an ex- her, with an exoskeleton, her skeleton on the outside. And um, she meditates because she wants to dissolve that exoskeleton. She wants to dissolve that, that armor that is, uh, that is a, barrier, her, ba- a barrier between her and the rest of the world. She wants to, she wants to dissolve that. I love that. I love that. Um, I love that image of an exoskeleton because somehow it seems so delicate, really, and so fragile. And it is. This, this armor that we wear to meet the world with um, is really so delicate. So do I want to be intimate with all things? Too fast. Wait a minute. Maybe I need to slow down here. Um, it sounds a little bit like connection. Do I want to be connected with all things? What does that mean? Do I really want to go in that direction? Is this why I'm meditating? To be connected with all things? Another reason we come to meditation is, be- is because we would like to have peace in our lives. We want peace. Many people, uh, many people start meditating because they believe that when they meditate, that uh, that maybe when when we sit, maybe when we sit we'll be peaceful. If our outside life isn't peaceful, well, maybe when we sit we'll be peaceful, and maybe by by having a peace in our meditation, maybe it will kind of spill over into the rest of our life, and we'll be peaceful there as well. And so we sit, and pretty soon we realize that. Um, that's not always the case. That uh, our minds are filled with thoughts. And not all of them are helpful or kind. There's often streams of fantasy. There's judging. There's fear. I mean, there's, there's a lot of happiness, too. Everything visits our world and our thoughts. And we see that our bodies are not always peaceful. It's like alert and relaxed. Sometimes I find myself in meditation and I'm, and I'm tight or I'm bent over. I don't know. There's not a whole lot of alert and relaxed sometimes. <laughs> and so this, is this studying the self and forgetting the self? You know, all I think about sometimes is meditation. And meditation is me. It seems like I'm not forgetting the self. It's, it feels like I'm thinking about myself all the time. So this peace, it doesn't feel real peaceful sometimes. I, um, uh, IMC offers, as I said, IMC offers retreats, and um, I've sat some retreats out at uh, Hidden Villa, which is in Los Altos, the Los Altos Hills. I don't know if any of you have been there. It's a beautiful place. 
um, that has a teaching garden for children, a teaching farm for children. And so IMC holds uh, their retreats there. And um, the retreats are in a hostel, and it's right across from the uh, teaching garden. And as we sit uh, retreat and we sit in meditation, we get to hear the school children brought through to the teaching garden. And, um, and so we hear them as they walk down the path. And Hiddenville is so wonderful, and they take such good care of us while we're on retreat, that they've told the teachers that, um, that there are people meditating, being very quiet across the road. So, uh, so they're very respectful. And, um, and one, afternoon I, one afternoon I was sitting and, and certainly not, not feeling peaceful and um, having actually a rather difficult time. And I heard the school children coming and I heard them singing. And, um, and then I heard the teacher say, shh, shh, shh. The people over there are meditating. They're, they're, they're trying to be quiet. And the... Um, and one of the children piped up, why are they meditating? And the teacher said, because they want to be peaceful. And it was, it was so sweet. It was so sweet to be, um, to be taken so well care of. And it was, it was so sweet that, um, that she was teaching the children that, that they're meditating. They want to be still and quiet because they want to be peaceful. They're learning to be peaceful. And then, of course... At times it is peaceful, and when it's peaceful, we want it to stay, or we question the peace. A friend of mine who was fairly new to meditation, she asked me, she said, I'm wondering, you know, is it too peaceful? Is this okay? Will this peace invade other parts of my life? She used the word invade. It's like I can only hope so. Um, <laughs> she, she said, she said, yeah, she said it it could invade other parts of my life, and that wasn't okay. So, um, you know, I think there's a way that we don't trust the peace. Certainly it seems not, because when it gets peaceful, we seem to question it, we seem to move away from it, and our thoughts come in and challenge it. Um, the ego comes in and, and says, not now, you know, I've still got work to do here. I think there's a, I think there's a, a deep non-trusting that we come into meditation with of peace, of calm, of quiet. Arjun Shah, uh, who is a Thai master, he's no longer alive, um, a Thai forest master, and um, he's the, uh, he's, he was the teacher of many of our teachers, of Jack Kornfield and, um, and the Abhayagiri monks come out of that tradition as well. The Abhayagiri monastery is up in Ukiah, and um, and and many of the, the senior abbots uh, um, were were, our disciples, were disciples of and studied with Ajahn Chah, and um, Ajahn Chah teaches us that in meditation we are learning to read the book of the heart. I love that we are learning to read the book of the heart. My teacher, Gil, uh, when I went to Guy House for the first time, and I was, I was starting to be very into studying at that point. Guy House is a fabulous library, um, just a big room full of Dharma books. And uh, I said to Gil, I saw him just before I left, um, right out here on the steps, actually. Um, I asked him as I was about to go, I said, 
Um, I asked him, I said, are there any books that you think I should read? Should I take some books along? Or, or the, I'm, sure, I'm sure I can read one there. What, what books do you think I should read? And Gil smiled and said, um, read the book of the heart. That's the only book you need to read. Read the book of the heart. He knew. He knew Ajahn Chah. And so as I read the book of this heart, I'm learning a new language. I'm learning the language of the heart. This very intimate language, this language of the heart. We can learn this language. And when we study this book of the heart, we often uncover things that we don't like about ourselves. We see deeply, we, we begin to explore the layers as we sit and as we meditate. And then meditation is a reflection of our lives. And we can see the default places that we go to. We can see the places of, of fear and anxiety and fantasy and desire, these places of non-trust, these places that we just somehow seem to slip right into. It seems to be effortlessly. Meditation seems like hard work and, and our, our lifetime of slipping into these places, these default places, which um, come out of conditions in which uh, I think, I believe for myself, in some way have served me. But they, they become de- default places and they no longer serve me. And we see these places, we see these default places. And we see them in daily life. We see as we move through the world how that happens. How, you know, I, I find myself saying the most amazing things sometimes. And I say, wow. How could I say that? Or, or how could I do that? It's these default places that I go to. It's like that. It's really amazing mistakes that I make in my life. Um, so I get to see that. And with our meditation, um, I see how these default places are reflected in our lives. And, um, and, I, and that's what happens is that, you know, it's actually good news that our meditation does invade all aspects of our life. It's what happens. It's a good thing. Our practice life and our daily life begin to merge together as we sit in meditation and we practice um, and have that intention to, to wake up and to show up. We wake up and we show up as we move through the world. And often it's a good, it's a good, it's a good thing to ask, why am I doing this? Why am I meditating? Um... When I was, uh, I think I was, I'd been practicing for about eight years and I was going through a rough time. And um, I remember thinking to myself that, um, that, great, this is what eight years of meditation have given me. I can watch myself going crazy. <laughs> it's like, great, I'm still going crazy, but at least I can watch myself going crazy. So I sit in meditation and I study the self. And I'm learning this new language. And what I'm learning about this new language is that it includes it all. It includes the fear. It includes the wanting. It includes the happy and the unhappy. And as I'm learning to read this book of the heart, I'm seeing that there is no insufficiency in my heart. I see that the heart is sufficient to include all things. All things fit in this space of the book of my heart.
It's all here. It can be fully met, and it can be met intimately. It's, it's, there's a way that I can see it and not turn away from it. There's so much space in our hearts when we practice. And, you know, we can even say, maybe say, I see you. Ajahn Sumedho, uh, who is, um, was, was also Ajahn Chah's uh, disciple, the, his first Western disciple, and he, is, um, he's, he, be, he began the first monastery in the West from the, from the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. You may have heard of him, um, Amaravati Monastery in England. Um, what Ajahn Chah, uh, how he puts it, how he practices with this book of the heart and with this, the things that come up in some of the difficult places, is he says, welcome. He just tells us to say, welcome. It's like, here you are. I see you. Hello. And really, what are we doing but saying welcome to ourselves? You know, it's nothing outside of me. And sometimes it's important to see that. There's, there's, there's things outside of we, ourselves that we welcome, but really, what are we, what are we welcoming but our own reactions to those things? There's, there's just things, but our reaction to them, it's like, welcome, I see you. Sometimes it's, I say to myself, I love you, I love you. I've spent time on retreat, on my walking path, going back and forth, just holding myself and saying, I love you, I love you. It's like, welcome. Welcome all of it. The heart is sufficient to hold it all. So learning this new language, this new language of the heart. I remember on a retreat, I, uh, I was working with Gil. And um, I went in um, to see him for an interview. It's, a, it's when you go and talk to the teacher. Uh, every few days on a silent retreat, you have an opportunity to talk to a teacher for, for a little while. And, um, and I went in and I said, um, I told him um, that I was so happy because I'm learning a new language. And uh, I said, I know what Helen Keller felt like when Annie Sullivan, her teacher, um, signed water into her hand as Helen held her hand underwater. I said, I I know what this feels like because her world began to make sense at that point. And she had the possibility of trust. She learned a language. She learned a new language, a new way to be in the world. And I understand that. I understood and I understand that. That this language of the heart, this language of the Dharma, allows me to be in the world with more trust. It's like a new language. I have a new way. I had a new way to relate to the world, to be in the world. A place less of, less of fear and a place of trust. A friend tells me that he meditates um, for refreshing. He did not say refreshed. He said, oh, that would be okay if I felt refreshed after meditation. But I meditate um, for refreshing. And I asked him what that meant, and he said that it's, uh, it's re-familiarizing himself with his spirit and with his heart. I like that. I love that word, refreshing. It's, maybe it's okay if I don't necessarily feel refreshed, but I'm re-familiarizing myself with myself, with my heart, with me. I'm learning, I'm learning to read the book of the heart. He was learning to read the book of the heart. 
So our meditation is the work that we do to change the default settings in our heart. In these settings they, that tell us that we are not alone, that are settings that tell us that we are, are alone, that we're not a part of. And in fact, by changing these default settings, by learning to read the book of the heart, those settings can begin to tell us that we are not alone, that we are a part of. When I worked with the, the students on, this, on the meditation course, the online meditation course, I heard from um, many of them uh, a way that they didn't feel a part of, that they felt a, very much a lack of um, confidence. The way it was often put, they felt a lack of confidence in social groups. The words that, it, that a couple of the students used was, were social anxiety. Um, and these were people who, were, who, who also expressed themselves as being very, very accomplished, very much in the world. It wasn't as if they, they, they were cloistered at their home and couldn't go out. But yet when they entered into um, the work arena or social groups, that they felt a social anxiety they did not feel a part of. These settings, these default settings that all my life, that all our lives have told, told us, that have told me that, um, that I'm all by myself. i got to do this by myself. The default settings that tell us this is, that this world is not, not a safe place. It's not trustworthy and that my heart is not a trustworthy place to rest in. And so this work, this hard work that we do, this sitting in meditation for showing up on our cushion, taking our seat, it's hard work. (laughs) I just, you know, once again it came to me, it's really hard work to do this. It's hard work to do it for, for 30 minutes on Thursdays. It's hard work to do it every morning. But you know, that's really okay. Um, there's plenty of space for it. It may, it actually probably will take a really, really long, 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 long time. For what? I don't even know what. Maybe to, 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 to understand why we meditate. But that's okay, because this is a really long path. This is a long, 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 long path. And along the way, we can learn to befriend ourselves. We can learn to trust this language of the heart. And there may still be a pull, but there's a way that um, we can begin to flow with it and, and rest in it, to rest in this place, in this language of the heart, in this book. We learn as, we, as we learn to read this book of the heart, we learn to, to flow and rest in it. And we learn to trust that that is enough. Trust. I want to uh, close with, um, I'm reading this great book. Uh, he's by, it's by a Soto Zen priest named Lynn Jensen. And um, he uh, is part of the Chico Sangha. And the book is called Bad Dog. And it's a memoir of love, beauty, and redemption in dark places. And it's a book of essays. And um, it's an exploration of his life through these essays and, and finding that love and beauty and redemption in dark places. 
I'd like to read you a uh, small part of an essay um, about bicycling. It's about, it's about bicycling and many things. But it begins with bicycling and it ends with bicycling. He says... Bicycling incorporates tilt into balance. Unless one is willing to tilt toward a fall, one cannot avoid falling. We are at all times poised for imminent fall. That we do not, that we do not continually crash is the working of a grace beyond our will. Do not think that we are held upright by the force of our own intent. For balance of itself seeks itself. We discard our training wheels when we acquire trust, when we discover that what is needed for our travels is already given to us in the very nature of things. We discard our training wheels when we acquire acquire trust, when we discover that what is needed for our travels is already given to us in the very nature of things. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. And I think that um, we have some time for any questions or comments or, or if anyone would like to uh, share with us uh, why you meditate. I'd be happy to hear from you. I'm curious about Gaia House. Could you say more about what is it? Gaia House is a retreat center. Um, it's in Devon, England, which is in the southwest of England. And uh, it's, it's part of the, uh, it's, it, as IMC, which is on the east coast, IMS, which is, which is, on, which is on the east coast, is Insight Meditation Society. And uh, Spirit Rock is um, here in Marin County. Um, Gaia House is in England, in Devon. And these are all teachers who... Uh, who really are our um, elders who began learning from the teachers in Asia and then at a point brought the teachings back to the West. And, um, and Guy House, Guy House uh, began in England with the founding teachers who are Christina Feldman and Stephen Batchelor and Martine Batchelor. Yeah, it's a wonderful place to practice the rolling, the rolling pastures of Devon, England. It's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, just a quickie. I'm not sure what you mean when you uh, repeated several times that meditation is hard work. I'm not sure what you really mean by that. I, I find it an immense pleasure and joy to meditate. I look forward to it. <laughs> Probably meditate too much. You you mean a hard work in that it puts some constraints on, on you that you have to contend with, or what? Um. I'm glad that it brings you such peace and joy. It does to me as well. Um, and what I mean by hard work is that, uh, for me, that peace and joy are not, um, not the default places that I go to in my life and in my heart. And, um, and that historically in my life, it's not, they're not places that I trust. Uh, so, um, so they don't come naturally. 
and when they do show up, I'm not I'm not sure I want them there. Um, and also, it's hard work because um, in meditation, there's a commitment to to show up for whatever happens, whatever whatever arises in meditation. And um, those things aren't always easy. They're not always easy places for us to to us. They're not always easy. Those 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 places, those things, those thoughts, those emotions that visit us in our meditation. Uh, and yet we commit to being there with them. The peace and joy is wonderful. It's, it's very nourishing and nurturing um, for this practice and for this path. And um, I think it's a lovely balance for those times for me that are more difficult. And in also that we have this commitment to meditate, that we have this commitment to, to take a part of our lives. And um, for, many, for many people, I hear people who go on retreat, and they're taking their two-week vacation to go and sit in meditation. They're not going to Hawaii. They're not going to, to wherever they might go to. They're not going skiing. And to take some very precious time, vacation time, free time and decide to come and sit at a retreat it's a big commitment thank you for your question would you say more about the language of the heart Um, um, I like I like those words, the language of the heart. I, uh, I have um, found for myself as I practice meditation, as I practice, as that, as that practice goes out into my life. Um, because that's why I'm doing it. I'm sitting in meditation to, um, to be in the world in a, in a more fully, and to be able to meet the world without that armor. And um, and I learn as I practice. I learn to listen to my heart, and not and not try to cover it up. And um, as I listen to my heart, I begin to be able to sift through the stories that I tell myself about myself and about the world. And um, and I begin to be able to listen to this deeper language that uh, that tells me what is true in my heart. And so I'm able to listen to what is true and what is not true in my heart in a way that I wasn't able to do before because because it was too scary to do that. It's a, and it's a new language. the The language that I um, the language that I used before was a language that often didn't tell me the truth. And um, I find this language must, much more trustworthy. Sometimes it's really scary. It's a really scary place to go to tilt into that, to tilt in that place of falling, knowing I'm going to be okay, knowing that is the place of balance. It's like it's the getting up and the falling down. There's so much space to be able to just fall down and get up and fall down and get up in our hearts. Is that helpful? Thank you for your question. Um, 
I was thinking and listening to you speak about things of um, something I'd read, and I can't remember who said it. Well, it's an Asian teacher uh-huh. who was talking about, is this on? Yes. Who was talking about um, Western culture in particular and how much um, it seems to have taught us to dislike ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that he found it, you know, when he first came to this country, he found it very sad, you know, how much uh, the, the culture makes you distrust yourself. It's almost like built into to our society in some ways. I was wondering if, if you had any comments on that. Uh, I've, I've also, I've, I've, I've heard that um, as well. Uh, when Asian teachers come over here, it's, you said, you said Asian teachers, is that correct? Yes, it was um, somebody. Yeah, that, that when Asian teachers um, come over here, that they have that experience. They're, they're, they're somewhat puzzled by, by um, what seems to be such a deeply rooted part of our culture, um, this not liking of ourself, um, this extreme self-judgment that so many of us in the West have. I've heard I heard a story about the Dalai Lama, um, who uh, who when he was in the West and um, was asked a question by a um, a Western practitioner um, about about that he was talking about himself and how he had this feeling that he practiced he's been practicing diligently and and um, that yet he feels such such self hatred I think was the word such a strong word and. Um, and it had to be um, go through many interpretations to the Dalai Lama. He did not. He was not able to take it in. Um, and then, when finally he he seemed to fully understand, he said very very clearly and um, with with some vehemence, he said, "No, that is not right. That is not right. That is wrong view." Is the term he used. Um, Meaning that the, the the way that you're looking at yourself, the way that you're looking at the world, is 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 not it's it's wrong view. It's it's not right. It's not going. It's it's not a place of freedom and understanding. Uh, yeah, I, I I I don't know a lot about Asian culture to know if that exists there, but I do know I've I've heard the same thing. It's very striking. Um, it's very striking. This, I mean, I, I know I'm guilty of it. <laughs> so, but, but I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. I guess, so part of what makes meditation appealing to me is the notion of compassion to yourself mm-hmm. as well as those around you. Mm-hmm. Getting a, giving yourself a break. Giving ourselves a break. What a concept. <laughs> I know that, as I said when I was just saying, I love you, I love you to myself. It's feeling like I did it for days. I love you. It's just this, it, was, it really opened up into such a place of compassion for, for myself. I mean, that's who we're doing this for. We're doing this for ourselves in order to show up for everybody else. It's, it's when we do this, then we can be in the, in the world in a way that... Um, that allows us to be more fully present uh, for everybody else and for everybody else in all things. 
for everything. It's like, okay, here we are. There's, there's exoskeleton isn't there so much. It's, I can see it all. I can see it. It's what a gift. What a gift to be able to do that sometimes. Thank you. I wanted to find out, uh, you spoke of uh, things that didn't serve you well right. in other places. I, I, I come from the same place in that way, but isn't, isn't it, would you find it also the sense that things that haven't served you well actually have led you to this place? So in, in, it's kind of a dichotomy, I mean, that those things have led, it's maybe they're negative, but they've actually led you to this where you are now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, anything can bring us to this place. Anything. Negative, positive, in between. Um, I'm really grateful for that experience, those experiences in my life that no longer serve me. Um, and in my life, because it was so extreme, it wasn't just about too much TV time. It was so extreme that uh, it brought me, it, it just showed right up in my face. It's, it's my life was falling apart. So, um, yes, I agree. I agree that it brought me, they served, they served my life um, for a time. Those things served my life for a time, for reasons in my life. And... Um, I'm really fortunate that when they no longer served me that um, there was so much available to to help me and to, to bring me here. Yeah, thank you. Hi, um, Hi, thanks a lot for your um, talk. This was very interesting. I like in particular uh, the image that you use with the new language that uh, Helen Keller um, had learned or like when she discovered yeah. like the, to, to associate words with uh, concepts and um, I too um, uh, came to meditation to support a 12-step program uh-huh. so and I um, and I found that I found exactly the same thing that when I learned all that language I really was wondering how come I was not aware of any of this for the first 50 years of my life so and how come so where how, how come I had only the language of the intellect and not the language of the heart so um, so thank you for that and um, uh, the other image that came for me, particularly tonight, is that I felt that my uh, brain or my mind was very scattered, and I come also to meditation to um, to make the difference between what's important and what's not important. Sometimes my mind is like opening my email, and there are 50 messages, but 45 of them are spam, and I really have to find like the five that are important. Yes. And, so and that helps a lot. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for that. It's yes. It's we we can learn to have a little more discernment and wisdom in our lives when we meditate, and uh, maybe no, we don't have to read all the emails. <laughs> I know. I I find myself caught up in front of that computer too. Yeah. So. Um, Thanks so much for being here. It was lovely to be here at IMC and sit with all of you. Uh, Yeah, thank you for your practice. Good night.